0: Good evening and welcome to the show. Well, it was 38 degrees in Sydney yesterday, 41 in the western suburbs, and in this postmodern post-industrial Australia, that means energy blackouts. My neighborhood was out for three hours in the afternoon. Some of the street lights were out last night and one set of traffic lights near the ADH office was not operating. There were blackouts in Brookvale, Rose Bay, Watson's Bay, and a group of suburbs on the central coast. This is the new normal in Australia. In Western Australia, the state government warned at the start of summer that, in the event of excess demand for the coal-fired electricity system, a system the government is systematically disabling so it can be replaced by renewables, by the way, it will send SMS messages to consumers warning them to turn off their air conditioners or face enforced blackouts. We have come to expect that sort of stuff from Labor governments. But what gives in New South Wales where the coalition is in power? Finding out who to blame for this yesterday's blackouts takes more effort than the average consumer can be bothered to expend. At the highest level, the regulations are written by the Australian Energy Market Commission, enforced by the Australian Energy Regulator, and apply to the Australian Energy Market Operator. Follow that. These are all monolithic government bureaucracies. On this occasion, though, none of them was at fault. Instead, it was Ausgrid, the company that has a monopoly over the distribution grid for Sydney, the Hunter Valley and Central Coast. Ausgrid is 49.6% owned by the state government, and the rest by major investors, including, no surprise here, Australian Super. Ausgrid, like most big corporations these days, has a nauseatingly woke mission statement on its website, which says, quote, More extreme weather events, including bushfires, floods, and storms have emphasized the importance of moving to a low carbon future. Note the elastic logic there. The weather has emphasized the importance of going low carbon. It hasn't proved the need for it. This is pure spin from a company in which the government is a fraction short of being the major shareholder and can therefore maintain a safe distance from its banal, deluded pronouncements. Osgrid goes on, quote: "The way we generate energy through renewable sources is driving change in the way Osgrid operates. Energy delivery is being influenced by the adoption of new technologies such as solar, batteries, and electric vehicles. Our pattern of energy use is evolving as we make changes to the way we live and work. Oh, we are changing the way we live and work all right by making our lives and workplaces beholden to more expensive, less reliable sources of electricity. By changing the way we live and work, what they mean is they are going to make our lives and jobs more difficult and expensive. Five coal-fired power plants in Queensland, New South Wales, and Victoria, which generate 13% of the East Coast electricity supply are earmarked to be sacrificed on the altar of woke environmentalism this decade. Two weeks ago, the CEO of the Australian energy market operator, Daniel Westerman, said this would start creating significant shortfalls from 2025. In other words, get ready for more widespread and frequent blackouts than those that happened in Sydney and the Central Coast yesterday. But here's the weird thing. There's an election on in New South Wales right now, and neither of the major parties is is alarmed by this. Instead, they are both committing to net zero by 2050. Premier Dominic Perrottet has thrown a bone to Conservatives by promising to keep one of those stations erroring near the Central Coast open a bit longer. But he's obviously got that through against the wishes of his deputy and factional rival, Matt Keane, who is greener than Labor. In other words, the one party that should be guaranteeing that Australia's largest state maintains its international competitiveness and standard of living is doing exactly the opposite. It's important to understand how this situation arose because it is happening in various ways across the country and affects us all. Selecting candidates for either of the major parties in safe seats is nowhere near as democratic as it might look to a casual observer. If a party power broker can shoehorn a candidate into a safe seat, then that power broker suddenly has access to the levers of government and can use that to benefit lobbyists. This is why former Liberal Prime Minister Tony Abbott famously said in 2016 that the party was easily controlled by factional warlords and that, quote, you can either be a power broker or a lobbyist, but you can't be both, unquote. Well, that was wishful thinking. Liberal pre-selections are meant to be decided by plebiscites, plebiscites of the members in the relevant electorate. But these days the process is often stalled by head office until it's too late, and a captain's pick is then parachuted in. Such picks are the result of factional deals, and the lobbyists who are entangled with the factions have more say than the rank and file. And those lobbyists are not interested in liberal principles. They just want to make money. And if that's from government subsidized green schemes that will make your life less prosperous, then so be it. Last night, I talked about how Donald Trump is dominating the Republican party in the United States because he knows what the electorate is worried about and can talk to them in their own language. If only we had someone like him in one of the major parties who could cut through in the same way. The closest New South Wales has at the moment is Mark Latham, who sits in the upper house for One Nation. In a flattering but accurate piece in The Spectator Australia this week, my ADH colleague, David Flint, describes Latham as having a quote, rare, practical and principled common sense. Politicians like Latham and Trump are so rare in fact that it's easy to forget that what they espouse is centuries old. 100 years ago this year, a Scottish conservative politician named Noel Skelton published four short opinion pieces in The Spectator magazine that together are called constructive conservatism and are as clear a description of conservatism as you could ever find. I highly recommend them, and you can find them by Googling his name, Noel Skelton, or the words constructive conservatism. In them, Skelton talks about how material wealth, particularly the ownership of a family home, builds individual character and stabilises the state." And that, quote, "...everything that weakens individual character and lessens individual effort and initiative is anathema to a conservative. Everything that strengthens and increases these is very near to his heart." Unquote. Well, it's rare to hear these sentiments from anybody in the Coalition these days, they are too frightened about spooking the electorate into thinking the nanny state won't be there to protect them from cradle to grave. In a minute, I'll talk to one of the leading coalition exceptions to that zeitgeist. The Liberal Party looks set to lose the New South Wales election on March 25, after which the only coalition government in Australia will be in Tasmania. Complacency among the dwindling rank and file in New South Wales is so widespread that the party is yet to even nominate a candidate in 18 seats. Even the Greens are fielding more candidates. This affects us all, because without a democratic, thriving, confident, and intellectually robust Liberal Party, or some other party that can offer the same, The free, prosperous and happy Australia, in which we grow up, will fade into the past faster than lights going out in the next mild heat wave. Well, to discuss how the federal Liberal Party can take the fight up to the flailing Labor government, Let's bring in LNP Queensland Senator Jared Rennick, who is more independent outspoken than most people in the party. Jared, welcome.
1: Good afternoon, Fred, how are you?
0: Good, thanks, good to see you back. Jared. firstly, I want to know, um, I mean, I know New South Wales is not your state, but it is the biggest of only two liberal governments in the country. Do you think the New South Wales Liberals should really be going to the state election with, among other things, a net zero policy?
1: Uh, Well, look, I mean, I've never been a fan of the net zero policy, period. Uh, I think what we should be focused on is uh, cheap and reliable energy. Uh, New South Wales has been very lucky. They're endowed with some uh, great coal mines down there in the Hunter Valley. Uh, And I think that they should exploit those coal mines as well as their gas reserves uh, in other parts of the state as well. Um, you, know, and, you know, if they really wanted to go renewable and I was serious about it, they should look at uh, going hydro. Uh, you know, there's a few places around the state you can probably slip in a hydro dam uh, as well.
0: Yeah, well, speaking of that sort of infrastructure, you you said recently that there's nothing wrong with governments printing money as long as they print it for the right reasons. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Well... well I- yeah, I mean, I, it's, I don't like to use the word printing money. Uh, it's, it's a question of expanding the volume of credit in the system and you need to do it in a manner that is responsible. Uh, so it, it's, you know, as I say, we should have a, well, I think I'm going to call it the sovereign bank. So I've been calling it an infrastructure bank, but a sovereign bank after the sovereign seven, which for me are dams, power stations, roads, rail, ports, airports and te- telecommunications. Those infrastructure assets, you know, have to be the number one priority of governments. Uh, They provide essential services. They also provide a form of revenue for the government uh, and they increase the supply of uh, not just essential services but business inputs. So the more power stations we have, the cheaper the price of energy. And as you well know, that energy is involved in every business. So if we can lower the cost of doing business, by having more essential services, i.e. power and water in particular, and better transport as well, uh, we can make our businesses competitive. And I think it's about time government's focused on delivering services like those rather than the overregulation regulation that we've seen in particular in the last decade, uh, you know, whether it be the climate change stuff, uh, you know, the government's have marched into the classroom, bedroom, the family home, corporate boardrooms, uh, into the doctor's waiting rooms. They need to get out of that. We need to get the bureaucrats out of that. We need to get them out of their offices and back on the road gangs uh, and, you know, uh, with a pick and shovel in their hand and actually building some genuine infrastructure.
0: Jared, you make so much sense. How does those sort of sentiments go down in the party room, though?
1: Oh, I'm battling it. and I've, I often call myself the last surviving uh, uh, protectionist in the party. I mean, as as you may well know, the Liberal Party was originally founded by Deakin and Barton, and they were two protectionists, uh, and there was a time in life when protectionism uh, wasn't considered a dirty word. Unfortunately, that word now is associated with high tariffs and sort of not having open markets, uh, and, I, and I disagree with that. I'm all for open markets and increasing market share, and Australia is selling as many goods and services across the world as possible, but we also need to protect our sovereignty and our children and our country and our values. Uh, And I make no apology that that stuff has to come first. Possession is nine-tenths of the law. And, you know, what we've seen in the last 40 years is governments sell this infrastructure, uh, often, you know, way below market value, and it's either been picked up by... Uh, foreign owners or unaccountable and unelected superannuation funds, both in the industry funds, union backed industry funds, and also in the privately owned um, wealth management as well. And no one, you know, if if, I mean, for all the people that don't have a self-managed super fund, they don't get to elect or appoint the the directors on these superannuation boards. So they have no input into how their money is being invested uh, in, in how their money is being invested.
0: Well, but a lot of the super funds in defense of the super funds, and I'm no big fan of them, I've got to say, but in defense of the super funds, they are investing heavily in infrastructure. What's wrong with that?
1: No, they don't. No, they don't invest in, uh, well, they, they buy infrastructure, they don't build infrastructure. So remember, you can buy a house that's existing, or you can, uh, you know, buy a new house, or a better example is, you might buy a new uh, a business, or you can start a new business. Australia has to grow its manufacturing base. And what's happened is is that the super funds actually aided and abetted privatisation. Privatisation could not have occurred without all that centralised pool of of wealth. Um, So in many ways I think they're actually destructive because what you will see is, and we saw this last year and the last couple of years with the Labor Party and the Auditor-General, uh, they were running interference with the construction of the new Western Sydney Airport by trying to allege that the Coalition had paid too much money for the remaining land. Now, you know, the cynic in me, and I've got, well, I, I know that what the Auditor-General was saying was wrong. It was actually worth $30 million as if you could buy 30 acres, the last 30 acres of, you know, un- untouched flat land in the Sydney Basin for $3 million. You can't buy a cardboard box in Sydney with views of the harbour for $3 million, let alone, you know, but a basin decent bit of land, Um, but you will see these monopoly infrastructure owners argue against the construction of any more infrastructure, right, because they don't want the competition. So I actually think that superannuation funds hinder uh, the construction of new infrastructure. Remember, they only buy, they don't build, and as you, I'm not sure where you're based, but in Sydney, for example, they built the M4, the New South Wales government built the, the new M4, the extension to the M4 to complete it right out to Penrith. But the taxpayer took all the downside risk on that. It wasn't the, um, the super funds or anything like that. And then they privatised uh, that M4, and now whoever they sold it to, if it's Transurban or Macquarie Bank or whoever, I'm not sure who the owner was, the new buyer was, they will get the upside of that for the next 150, 200 years.
0: Yeah, yeah, good point. Well, um, just getting back to the politics of it all though, the, your, the coalition is losing a lot of ground to teals in traditional strongholds and probably will again in this forthcoming New South Wales state election. How do you explain that, Jared?
1: Oh, well, I mean, these people have got more money than sense. That's how I explain that. And they can basically afford the virtue signal. They'd have a different point of view if they couldn't afford the increase in power bills. Um, but the solution to that is, as far as I'm concerned, the Liberal Party needs to get back to its roots. And if you want to go back to our roots, you need to read what Robert Menzies' Forgotten People speech. And he himself says the rich and powerful can look after themselves. He mentions the word home 23 times in that speech. And he also concludes by saying we should not go back to the old and selfish notions of laissez-faire. So I'll just touch on that other super thing. Markets don't build. They buy and sell, right? We've got to remember that. The people, the things that build are the people. Right, And what, what you know, we've got to promote in this country is forget about free markets. Every market's regulated and effectively most markets of any decent size now is just a conga line of rent-seeking parasites. What we've got to do is empower the individual because they are the true capitalists of the world. They're the guys that get out of bed every day, put their nose to the grindstone. And I don't care You know, if you're a carpenter or, or a builder or a bricklayer, you use your hands. Uh, if you're a nurse or a teacher, you use your heart and your brain. Uh, you know, engineers are using their brains, you know, the small businessman's putting his wallet on the line. Uh, these are the people who risk their own capital and that's why we've got to promote genuine capitalism where we get the bureaucrats and all these rent-seeking parasites that have got their hands in the till clipping the ticket on everything and that includes superannuation. We've got to stop promoting that type of stuff and promote individual uh, uh, and and aspiration.
0: Yeah, you're talking uh, very much like a representative of Middle Australia. Ironically on the weekend, or perhaps not ironically, but despairingly on the weekend, we had two members of the federal uh, cabinet marching across the Sydney Harbour Bridge in solidarity with their, uh, you know, um, esoteric sexual practicing fr- uh, colleagues. How did you, do you think that's a good look for a prime minister?
1: Uh, look, uh, uh, look. if that's the path they want to go down to, you know, that that's fine. Um, uh, you know, uh, as I said, you know, as you just said, I'm, I'm focused on middle Australia. I don't care what politicians do on the weekend and what they want to promote. I, I, I myself will promote the family, uh, working families, and making sure there's enough bread on the table um, and making sure that there's jobs there and that our children are going to have the same opportunities that our forefathers gave to us. Quite frankly, I'm sick and tired of all the identity politics that's infected politics today, uh, and it has, you know, it, it's poisoned. It's poisoned politics. I mean, politics was always, you know, a bit of a, a, a brutal sport, but this identity politics crap, where we we divide the country on race or religion or, or sexual preferences, has got to stop. We're all one race, the human race, uh, and we all need to focus on empowering the most the most important, uh, you know, entity of all, which is the individual.
0: Well, again, well said. And speaking of identity politics, let's talk about the voice to parliament. Why is the government playing the small target strategy on this? Oh, sorry, not the government, (laughs) the coalition.
1: Uh, Well, look, the the idea behind that, and, you know, as you well know, I'm totally against the voice, is effectively that if we come out and oppose it straight away, they'll Albanese will go, oh, you're just a bunch of redneck racists. You never supported it anyway. There, There has been, and I must admit, I was a bit of a cynic at first, but, well, we are tying Albany, you know, the Prime Minister elbow up um, in, in not over-explaining the detail. Look, I, I still think we should be running the first line. Is that we oppose it on principle? Um, but you know, there is no doubt that you know Labor have no plans. They can't identify uh, what what the way forward is with this. And of course, you know, as my good friend and colleague uh, Senator Alec, Alex Antic, uh showed in estimates, they couldn't even define what percentage of originally had to be uh, to even be on the voice. I'm, I'm very jealous of my colleague. That <laughs> that was one of the, one of the best questions I've ever seen in estimates. Um, it was just a ripper. Well, and, speak, but uh, speaking of questions,
0: yeah, yeah, it was it was good. But there was an equally uh, equally uh, compelling moment in one of those Senate committees late last year when you asked the Australian Bureau of Statistics. If there was any uh, discernible link between the sudden increase in excess deaths in Australia and vaccinations, now did the did the ABS ever get back? They, I think they took the uh, the question on notice. Did they ever get back to you, Jared?
1: No, they didn't. Uh, and I asked the question again this last month in February. Uh, and I'm after the. I want to know of all the people that passed away in Australia in 2021 and 2022 how many of them were vaccinated, the date of their vaccination and their date of death, because we really need to establish a temporal association between the date of vaccination and date of deaths, because we had, you know, about eight to 9,000 extra deaths in 2021. When there was next to no COVID in the community, remember, they're and, and then this year we're going to end up with about 30,000 extra deaths. Um, and when I say extra deaths, 30,000 over 2019. So they, they're fudging it saying there's 20,000 excess deaths, and they do that by calculating what they expected the number of deaths to be uh, and then they subtract the actual number of deaths. But they've bumped that expected number up to reduce the difference between the two, but there is no real reason why the expected number of deaths should have jumped if the vaccines worked, right? That's um, right, yeah. So there a bit of playing a few word games there as well. But, no, I haven't. Yep. Um, and I must admit, Fred, I'm very frustrated as to how all this, you know, these bureaucrats continually um, obscure what's really going on. And people were forced to go and get that green tick. Remember, I know, I know not everyone got it. Some people got a paper, a uh, bit of paper and others just didn't get the vaccinated at all. But we need to know uh, this thing was a, a, a provisional drug. I mean, you know, we can call it experimental. Um, I'll, I'll use provisional so you can get this up on social media, because we know that our good friends at social media are big brother on every word we use in these type of videos nowadays. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, well, you know, we well need as I to said,
0: have. as I said last night, Jared, on my show last night, I I've got a friend who passed away just last week from a very sudden and severe, uh, and un- obviously untreatable case of cancer, and you know she leaves a, a grieving family behind. I'm not focusing this on me. The point is that I think almost everyone in Australia now knows of someone who died recently, and in the back of their minds, they're thinking. Wow, I wonder if that's in connected to vaccinations. So, Jared, you really have to keep that up. We'll have to keep in touch on that point, but uh, thanks for the fight that you do and uh, thanks for your time this evening.
1: Thanks very much, Greg.
0: That's Queensland LNP Senator and one of the best men in the Senate, in my opinion, Jared Rennick. Well, that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. Alan Jones is up at 8 p.m. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can find me at, at Fred Paul, that's F-R-E-D-P-A-W-L-E, or follow ADH on at A-D-H-T-V-A-U-S. ADH's rapidly expanding lineup now includes Alexandra Marshall of The Spectator Australia, pop culture doyen Daisy Cousins, along with David Flint, Nick Cater, Lyle Shelton, and more talent to be announced soon. You can listen to or watch all our content on demand on the usual platforms, or better still, download our app, which you can find by searching ADH TV. And I'll see you again tomorrow at 7pm. Good night.